Advent is a season of hope. Advent is a season of expectation. Hope is all about expectation. It's, it's what you expect. And will it be realized? There are hopes that are not realized. Unfortunately, there are, there, are, there are things that you hope for that are not, in fact, going to come to pass. And yet, we are to set our expectations. One of the ways that we get ready for His coming is to set our hope fully on that salvation, that redemption, that future that will be revealed at His coming. We set our expectations not only about the future, but we're wise to set our expectations rightly in the present. We, in fact, are preparing in the present for the future. Expectations are a funny thing. Expectations are fueled by what you read. I hope that means a reference then to the Bible, but let me give you a non-biblical example. I, I enjoy football. Well, at this age, I enjoy watching it more than playing it. I enjoy reading about it more than the actual doing of it, and I hope that's not true in the Christian life, but for football, that's true. I, 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 I get excited about football during draft season. Who did we pick? What that's going to happen? And I read all the hype, and I am so excited. Of course, I'm reading the hype about one team. And that same hype is going on about every single team and all of their choices as well, but I'm just reading one. And I'm sure this is the year, right? And as the season is coming and even getting into preseason, I'm reading all the press. And the press is designed for one thing, to get you to read more, first of all, so it's very optimistic. And secondly, to get people to come to the games, to buy the tickets or at least to watch and push up the ratings and so the expectations are pushed, and they are high, and we just knew this was the year the Seahawks were going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and you laugh. You've been watching, too. Yeah, the, the opening game wasn't good. So what happened? I read all of these things. What happened? But then it all began to come together, week after week, game after game. And then there's been these last three weeks. And it's been good that I really haven't had time to watch. Because those are the kind of things I really didn't want to see. And all I have to look forward to next week is meeting the 49ers again. But my expectations now are a little more realistic. What are your expectations? We can expect things in this life that are not promised and will likely not be realized. We can actually set our expectations to that which the Lord has told us. He's, he's, he's let us know in advance, in fact, that he is preparing us for his glorious future, and yet, in a sense, we're going to God's gym. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And we set our expectations then about 
what life will be like, what our experiences will be now, as well as our expectations about his future as a result of that. In this Advent season, I want to go through a series of passages in the New Testament that not, I, in, in Advent seasons, year after year, I've, I've focused on some of the prophecies of his coming. We focused on the birth narratives, sometimes even using Advent to start a series in one of the Gospels that would then wrap around into the new year. And this year, we're not doing prophecies of Messiah. We're not doing the birth and Christmas Bethlehem narratives. We're doing some exhortations, some calls to action out of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, getting ready for his coming. Passages that specifically and even explicitly call us to that. That's what we're going to be doing the next several weeks. And the first one of those is an odd place, but I chose it for a reason. You'll see that soon enough. It's in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, a short passage, a tight passage, with very clear expectations for us. Let me read those few verses. James chapter 5 and verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There it is. It's an Advent passage. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James says that we are to wait patiently for his coming. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. We're, we're waiting like Simeon for that which is not yet. Simeon had been waiting through his life for the consolation of Israel, for the com God's comfort to come to his people. This is a people that God chose from Abraham, and yet they haven't, they haven't experienced the full realization of that promise yet. And they have been, since the time of the Babylonian captivity, they have been under, fully under, the oppression and the rule of other powers. And they're longing for God's deliverance. Things are not right. Things are unjust. And they're, they're, they're waiting for God. And those who believe in him still, a minority to be sure, but those who believe in him still are waiting like Simeon for the promise of God to be realized. And he sees it, or he sees him, God's promise. There's hard times while waiting for the first coming of Messiah. 
There will be as well hard times. And it has been that the case for the church, in fact, through this entire time. And yet it's not simply a matter of until God's time for the full realization of his promise is just going to be hard. God is, in fact, doing his work in each generation of his children, readying us for his coming. Oh, we long for his coming. But his coming will be even better if we're ready. And so God faithfully, not unlike the faithful farmer, God is, God is readying us. We know that things are not right. Things are not right in the first century. Jesus has come. Jesus has, has commissioned his apostles. He has left his church in their care as he departs, waiting for his return. And yet, as James describes here in his epistle, things are still not right. In the, in the previous six verses, verses 1 to 6 of James chapter 5, he, he breaks into this rant, if you will, and, and well, we could, we could debate, honestly, either way, is he talking about rich Christians within the church, or is he talking about the wealthy in society who, who oppress, and especially the Jewish believers in the first century were the poorest in society. They'd been ostracized, they'd been marginalized. They've been even put out of their own families. And uh, they are experiencing harsh oppression from those who have. And yet James says then in verse 7, therefore, pointing back to that reality, the reality in which we wait, yet be patient, endure. There's a, there's a long-suffering aspect of of circumstances, as well as a long enduring with people that are wrapped up in that word. He gives us the farmers an example. The harvest comes later. And the farmer is dependent on what God will do. There's the early rains that prepare the ground first for plowing and then moisture in the ground so the precious seed that is sown will germinate and start to grow. And that, that actually occurs in the fall in Israel. And the first plantings occur in the fall as well. And there's winter grains, barley and winter wheat even, that are, that are sown at that time. And the rains continue watering the ground. The crops begin to sprout and grow. And the, the late rains, that the rains not only start... It's a terrible thing. I saw this in Israel with the corn harvest as well, that they would, rains would start and they wonder, is it time to plant? Because the rains come and you plant, but if then there's a pause for a month, what you put in the ground will not germinate and the seed will be lost. And so not only did the rains start, but will the rains continue? And will the late rains come that are necessary for the final harvest to ripen? Will they come as well? And yet the farmer is not idly waiting and wondering. The farmer is working diligently while waiting. And yet one plants, another waters, Paul says, and God must provide the increase. It's a farming metaphor. The farmer is waiting then, but not merely waiting and enduring. He's waiting in trust that God's given him work to do. But God will bear fruit from it. And God will do what he cannot to bear fruit from it. The farmer, as an example of the harvest coming later. There will be a harvest, and it's worth waiting for. It's worth working towards. 
The prophets are an example. They spoke truth while they were opposed. They hope for that which they do not yet see. And they speak that message in the midst of a generation that really doesn't want to hear it. Job is an example. His hardships, his suffering, his loss, his death. And Job endures. Job's steadfastness. He, that word that's used there, steadfast, enduring, it's a word that means to abide underneath a weight. To abide under. The weight is pressing him, and yet he continues. That's his steadfastness. It's not just steadfast, waiting, watching the time go by. It's waiting in the midst of difficulties. This is one of the reasons we did a series in Job is the connection that James make here, makes here to waiting for his coming. That is the environment in which we wait. You see, Job is an Advent story. Do you ever think about that? Job is not merely a story of Job. Job is a story of Israel. That Israel is God's chosen, and yet God chooses a people to reveal himself to all peoples, and the, and the enemy is going to get right in the middle of that. And stir it up. And you see that happening almost immediately in Abraham's family. And yet, through a long time of suffering and enduring, there will be a future realization of the fullness of God's blessing and shalom. That Job experiences as that's what Simeon is longing for. The restoration of Israel. Job is not merely an Israel story. Job is a world story. Job is a humanity story. Job is a story that parallels from the, from the Garden of Eden and then the fall because of the lies and the accusations of that great dragon, the serpent, and the difficulty, the loss, the grief, the sorrow, the enduring in hope that God will make it right. Now, the enduring isn't always just as it should be, is it? We don't always endure the troubles. We don't always endure what's wrong well. And that's what, Job, or that's what James rather is calling us to. I know you, you probably were wondering, why, why would we do a, a, a series on Job? I mean, that's like praying for patience, right? You just don't do that. Well, actually, we need to do that because praying for patience likely will bring, bring troubles, sure. But what do the troubles bring? Endurance and patience and proven character and the proven character of God glorified through the press and the trouble and the squeezing out of us, like the squeezing out of Job, the realization that I have heard of God, yes, but I need to know him more deeply. And I'm pressed to him more deeply, even through trouble. And waiting, trusting. One of the things we learned from Job and the prophets, don't be intimidated being a remnant. Don't be intimidated being the minority, the odd man out. We Expect that what God has said, God will do. What God has promised will be realized. We, we set our expectations in the present. Why wouldn't there be trouble? And we set our expectations toward the future. 
that God will do what he said. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. Think of it, that which he told us to pray for. Do you think Jesus told us to pray that way so that it wouldn't happen? Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, because it will. He tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because the day is coming when it will. But we don't see it yet. So we hope. We don't hope for that which we see. We hope for that which we don't yet see. And hoping in his coming, hoping in God's promise, hoping in his future, we respond in hope in the present. And this is the core of James' exhortation. We respond in hope in the present. First of all, we respond by waiting patiently. We wait patiently in the midst of circumstances, enduring not only the circumstances, not only patience in the troubles, but patience with one another in the troubles. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. We're to be patient even with those who are lazy or idle as we encourage them to get into the game, to come along with us, but patiently, not harshly. We are patient with those who are hesitant and fearful. We, we encourage them. We are patient with those who are weak, They've been injured. They've been hurt. And out of those hurts, out of that pain, maybe they've withdrawn. Maybe they're scared to put their head up again. And we're patient with them. And they need personal attention and coming alongside. We're told to be patient with one another. Not merely the trying people. Not merely the people who are difficult and wear you out. Not merely your opponents, but be patient with others. And be careful then about expectations. I was just about to say, be patient with those who don't measure up to your expectations. Isn't that true? Don't we have even higher expectations for others than we do for ourselves? Because we understand why we missed it where we missed it. And we, and we understand what our motives were, what we wanted to do, even if we really didn't. For others, we only see what they do or what they don't. Did they meet our expectations or did they not? So it's, easy, it's, it's easier for us to not be patient with others than it is for us to be patient with ourselves. I can be much more understanding about me than you. Well, with some of you, that's understandable. I mean, give me a break. Looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> My friend. The, the expectations about one another. Be patient as God is patient. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Now, we often, we often understand that in terms of uh, God wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, be forgiven, and have eternal life with him. But what if God is also, as Peter says there, patient with you? 
Do you think about God being patient with you? We are to forgive one another, even God, as God in Christ has forgiven us. We are to be patient with one another, as God in Christ is patient with you. Understanding. James says, Be patient, therefore, brother, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. You also be patient, the beginning of verse 8. And you also be patient. Now he moves on from patience to establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. That establish means to strengthen, to establish your heart that you will not be moved, you will not be easily blown over by circumstances. You'll not be like my fence, which has long rotted away. The posts have given up at ground level because of the dampness of the ground. And I have these these, um, long two-by-sixes that are braced one fence post to the next diagonally, holding the thing up, hoping the next windstorm doesn't take it down before I can get around to replacing the fence. But it needs to be established. It is no longer established. It is no longer strongly rooted that it can stand firm in the midst of oppositional forces. But we are to be. We are to be strengthened. We are to, to, he says, establish, verse 8, establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts in the midst of the waiting and strengthen your hearts. That proving of character only happens in the midst of opposition in the waiting. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says, so that... God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He is strengthening, he is establishing us now for eternity. This is God's gem. This is where we are growing. This is where we are developing heart-strengthening muscles. Think of it as soul-strengthening muscles. Think of it as the ability to trust God for what we don't yet see. The only way you can strengthen your ability to trust God for what you don't see is to not see it. In fact, even to be in a circumstances where it looks like it's not true. And yet, you have to believe it. You have to believe God's promise when you've got no tangible thing before you that confirms it yet. And yet I believe it because God said so. That's where faith is strengthened. If we were on an easy glide upward to glory, it would get easier and easier to believe, but that is not the path you are on. That is not the trail he has chosen for most of us. For most of us, it's a trail that will strengthen us along the way. This is spiritual exercise. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8, I love this verse. Well, at least I love half of it. He says, train yourself for godliness. For why? This is the part I like. For while bodily training is of some value. Some versions even say little value because they're doing the comparative. I like that. Bodily exercise. You know, Bob does not have a gym membership. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
that you exercising faith, your heart being strengthened, your soul being established, you exercising faith in God even when it doesn't look like you should, strengthens your heart, strengthens your faith for today. It works that Christ-likeness, he who endured for us. Walking with him, sharing in his sufferings, taking up your cross and following him, that not only has the benefit of God-likeness, godliness in this present age, but you are shaping, you are building. I don't want to try to do that too much because you'll see what's not there. I don't have a gym membership. But we are built. My, look at that buff spirit. That's what you can be thinking here. That God is growing us. God is exercising us now. Trusting him, even in the midst of trouble, for eternity. God is doing his work. Value in the present life, but also for the life to come. So you can bike, you can hike, you can do crunches or curls, that's fine. But prioritize. I would say dump the gym and join a D group. Seriously, dump the, write that down. Dump the gym and join a D group. If you've got to choose one or the other, oh, I can't make a D group for an hour and a half each week sometime in the morning early because I go to the gym then. Dump the gym and join a, group, a D group because that, that, that time exercising and stretching together toward godliness, a next step in spiritual growth pursued with others. I remember when I trained for, for Hood to Coast, I ran so much better when I ran with others. And so we will spiritually. Train with others. Strengthen your heart in the company of others. Bob said so. Dump the gym. Join the D group. And show your expectation in hope that doesn't grumble. There's another way that we respond in hope. One of the ways we respond in hope is how we train in trouble, exercising our faith, but we show our expectation of hope. We show our confidence in God's future in the midst of the present that isn't right by not grumbling in the present that isn't right. When I'm grumbling in the present that isn't right, I'm revealing that my expectation is in the present rather than in God's promise. So James says, and this is how grumbling, it's not just a practical aside, it's a core revelation. This is what gets squeezed out of us. We even saw it a little in Job, didn't we? Didn't you see some of Job's grumbling in there along the way? Maybe just a little. And so James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you, not be, you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And the judge is our Lord and our King. And he is coming. He is at the door. And so if he's at the door, if he's that close, he knows what we're up to. You know, I watched some football yesterday. I told you already about my hang-up with football. I like college football instead because I'm not personally invested. I don't so always have a team in the game. and I can just pick an underdog and root for them. But one of the things that happens, when, especially when it's unexpected... And a team, the game is not going the way that they expect you. You know one of the things that happens on a team, any kind of a team? What happens is they begin to grumble. They might grumble about the other team. They're not playing fair. They might grumble about the refs. They're not calling the game fair. They easily can begin to grumble against one another. 
man, you blew that, you messed up, you did this, you should have done that, and, and the pointing fingers at each other rather than encouraging and, and, and pulling together. When things aren't going well, a team can start to grumble against one another. When things aren't going well, when there's trouble, when there's pressure, a church can start grumbling against one another. A family can start grumbling against one another when it's, in fact, the very time that you should be pulling in and reinforcing and encouraging and strengthening one another. And so James says, do not grumble against one another. I like to go hiking. I like to take people with me hiking. Taking grumblers is not always good because when the hike goes long and the hike goes steep, that's when the grumbling starts. Who picked this trail? Well... In Indian heaven, it may have been me. But in life, can I say it? Who picked this trail? God did. Buck up, buttercup. Why grumble? You're grumbling against God's good intentions for you that he set you on a trail where he is training you for glory. We can grumble about it, or we can go with it trusting him. I might not like it. I don't know why, but I bet there's something beautiful around the trail if I'll just keep going uphill. And at least in hiking, I've never been disappointed along those lines. Keep going uphill, and there is going to be a view that'll make it all worthwhile. How much more is that true in our life and God's future? Now, in this, in this relationship where, where um, he, he, he talks about don't grumble, the judge is at the door. Uh, let me go back and find the verse again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Well, when Jesus comes, he's going to judge those, those who have resisted him, those who have rebelled against him, those who have not accepted God's patient offer of life in Christ and demand to be judged instead to stand on their own merits and in their own evil. But he tells the church, brothers... The judge is at the door. Don't grumble that you not be judged. And one of, our, one of the men in our Monday study, he was debriefing with his son afterwards, and the son wasn't sure he got the sense of the passage. And there was a, this part of the grumbling and the judging, and he explained it this way, and I thought he, he did pretty well. He said, well, imagine if I was, if I, I had given you three kids some instructions I want the basement cleaned up. I've got to be away for a little bit, but while I'm away, I want you to clean up the basement. And I'm going to put the oldest one in charge, and I want all of you to work together, and I want you to glorify God in how you work together while I'm gone. Well, while he's gone, the oldest, as sometimes the oldest can be prone to do, takes charge. I mean really takes charge. And takes charge means they don't have to do any work. They can just tell everybody else what to do. Let's just say, I'm sure it would never happen in that family, but let's just say the oldest just takes charge and he gets to, to treating badly and, and bossing and even striking the others and taking advantage of them to even to get stuff he wants done done instead of what dad wants done. 
And the others, well, they're grumbling about the work. They're grumbling about these harsh conditions and how they're being treated. And in the midst of that, they're grumbling against one another. And dad comes back. And dad stands at the basement door. Before he comes in, he's listening to all of this. And he's hearing all the fighting and all the bickering. And he's hearing it from the older who's taking advantage of the others. But he's hearing it in the others and their response. And he comes into the room fuming. Certainly in a godly sort of way. He comes into the room fuming and he asks his boy, what happens? And the son said, well, all of us get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one, because he did not lead well, he took advantage of the others, but the others that they themselves still did not do what their father wanted them to do, no matter the circumstances and how it played out. They would have been all the more rewarded if in a bad situation they had still remained faithful to what their father gave them to do. Well, that's a pretty good example out of an odd passage in James chapter 5. So you, brothers and sisters, don't grumble against one another. That you may not be judged, but rather rewarded, rather hearing those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so we stay steadfast because he is coming. Again, verses 10 and 11. And he gives those two examples, the example of the prophets and the examples of Job. We remain steadfast. We remain enduring under the pressure, abiding, continuing as God has given us to do until he comes, even though it presses upon us, even though it's hard, even though it's steep. The prophets did in an antagonistic age. Job, he says, like Job, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He gives an example of Job. And one of the reasons the end of the Job ends as it is, because we're supposed to be reminded by the story of Job, that God will make it right. God will restore what was lost, what was stolen, what was ruined because of sin. God will restore it. What was, what was stolen away by the devil and his schemes, God will restore. We're supposed to get that out of Job. And even on a worldwide scale from Genesis chapter 3 forward, we've been in a field of thorns instead of God's garden. And yet he will restore it. Job was to remain steadfast. And a key for remaining steadfast was to see God as he was. We need to have a heart strengthened. The richest part of Job's blessing, in fact, was to see God more fully. And I think he saw God more fully in the midst of his suffering. We will certainly see Jesus more fully there. In the midst of wrongful suffering at the hand of another, you know what you can see there? That's what Jesus endured for me. And I hope that in the midst of... That's, this is a terrible thing to wish for a pastor to wish for his church. But along the way somewhere, 
just enough sometime to experience that wrongful hurt at the hand of another that wasn't right, that shouldn't have been, so that there you would see a little something of Jesus. That's what Jesus did for me. And that would be worth it. Job says, I heard of you, but now I have seen you. And we need those glimpses of our Savior. Not because they help us to endure, but because they change us. And that's what God is doing here. Do you want to know Jesus more fully? You want to get inside his head, get inside his heart? It's going to cost you something. It's going to be following him. It's going to be stepping into his obedience and his sacrifice for the sake of others. It's going to be bearing, like the prophets did, some of the rejection that he bore for faithfulness to God. You too could be maligned, falsely accused, lied about, left out. That's how those closest to God have always been treated through history waiting for his coming. That's the way the son himself was treated. But God says to us, endure troubles. Be patient with one another. Not grumbling as we grow, but stretch our faith to strengthen our souls. James urges us to remember that this will yield good fruit in God's season. That the Lord's coming is in fact at hand. He is at the door. That abiding under the pressure will lead to blessing in knowing God. That the Lord is, as Job saw, the Lord is, contrary to his circumstances, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you will see it and experience it. I'd like you, as we consider this passage, identify a trouble Identify a particular circumstance or anxiety where, where you need to keep trusting God and enduring. Life's hard. I wish it wasn't. I wish, some of you, the troubles that I know, I wish weren't. Oh, how I would change it. And yet we'll trust God there. We will trust God for what he is doing for eternity in what is miserable in the present Identify a trouble where I need to endure trusting God here. Perhaps name a person. A person you need to extend patience to. A person who wears you out. A person who wears you down. A person who disappoints you. Who doesn't meet your expectations. A person you will extend loving patience toward as God is patient with you. Or maybe a person or a place, a who or a why or a what or a when, where I tend to grumble. Jot that down in your notes. Say, Lord, help me to give thanks to you here instead of grumbling. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to reset our expectations now and, and certainly to set our expectation, to set our hope fully on the salvation that will be revealed? Father, would you give us the eyes of Simeon to behold your salvation and seeing Jesus come for us? 
to be confident then that he will, he will come again. Lord, we long for that day. And Father, let the reality of it rule in our hearts, in our expectations in this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.